This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I try to convince you that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is scripturally accurate and logical and true. And I'm bringing to a conclusion this series on salvation from a Reformed perspective. This is part five of a five-part series. These five points are commonly referred to as the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. Um, They are not doctrines which were invented or formulated by John Calvin. Uh, He did believe these things and teach these things and champion these things. But he was one of many in the Reformation that did this. Uh, He's not alone in church history. These truths may be new to some of you, but they are not new in church history. If you'll look at the insert that you have received there, you'll see a list there of famous Calvinists and a list of famous Arminians or non-Calvinists. You'll see on the Calvinistic side there were such men as St. Augustine and Martin Luther John Calvin and John Owen and John Bunyan and John Gill and Jonathan Edwards. There was a period there where if you were a Calvinist, your name had to be John. Um, George Whitfield of the First Great Awakening. William Carey, that missionary to India. Charles Spurgeon. And by the way, it was 118 years ago today that Charles Spurgeon laid eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are celebrating today the 118th birthday of the death of Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers known as the greatest preacher in the English-speaking language. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, also from England. James Montgomery Boyce of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. D. James Kennedy, who put together evangelism explosion and uh, truths that transform. And then some that are living still and that are championing this cause. Uh, You can hear many of them on the radio like R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, a tremendous author, D.A. Carson, uh, Wayne Grudem, who has written a systematic theology, Alistair Begg, whom many of you listen to on WMCA, uh, the leader of Sovereign Grace Ministries, C.J. Mahaney, and then the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Al Mohler. But there are also some very famous uh, men that were championing the cause of Christ in their own way, and they were not Calvinist and are not Calvinist or Arminians. Um, It all started with Jacob Arminius. Uh, John Wesley was a very godly man. Uh, Charles Finney, I would not put him into the category of godly. In fact, I would categorize him as a heretic uh, who believed actually uh, that you could save yourself apart from the work of Christ. Uh, But he was uh, very well noted during the Second Great Awakening. Um, D.L. Moody of Moody Bible Institute, Billy Sunday, the um, evangelist that uh, was very, very popular, a former baseball player. Um, Also, J. Vernon McGee, who used to be on the radio for a long time. I believe he's still on some stations. Billy Graham, who has done a lot for the Lord. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series, and it is my recommendation that you leave that series behind. Um, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, 
Charles Stanley, uh, Jerry Falwell, who went to be with the Lord in 2007, uh, Rick Warren of Purpose Driven Church fame, uh, another book that we would not recommend but is very well known, uh, Max Lucado, who's done some excellent writing, and then uh, as far as numerical success, no one has um, equaled in our generation Joel Osteen, who does not believe the doctrines of grace. So you see that there are men on both sides of the issue. But just because I believe these things and just because a host of Bible scholars throughout church history have boldly proclaimed the doctrines of grace, uh, that really matters very little. And it also matters very little that there have been men that did not proclaim these things. What must be asked of any doctrine is not where does it fall in church history, but ultimately it's concerning the Bible. Is it biblical? Is it what the Bible teaches? You see, all faith and all doctrine and all beliefs must stand the true test of Scripture. Church history is helpful and should be um, not be discarded, but history is the history of fallible men. But ultimately, your landing spot has to be based upon the infallible Word of God. Now, what I have done for the past four sermons is I've done my very best to present the first four points of Calvinism, giving scriptural evidence to each point. And you say, well, why have you not presented the other side? Well, uh, simply put, because I believe that the other side is false. I'm not going to teach something which I believe to be false. Um, I do admit, however, that I have not given an exhaustive study to this topic. Um, for anybody that was listening and taking notes, I believe that I have given sufficient evidence of to present each point. But for those of you that have listened attentively and still don't buy the whole package, um, because there are still verses which, in your opinion, don't fit into the grand scheme of Calvinism, let me say this. This was not an attempt on my part to answer every objection nor to confront every argument. Um, I'm not purposely avoiding anything, and I'm not running away from anything. In fact, I would enjoy speaking with you about anything that you would like to talk about concerning this. But my purpose was just to give an overview of the five points with scriptural support for each. And so if you find yourself in the category of, yeah, but, uh, but what about, uh, well, what about this verse? Well, if you find yourself in that category, let me recommend what I believe to be the most foolproof treatment of the defense of the doctrines of grace. It's going to be an expensive book. It's going to cost you a few bucks. And to read it, uh, you're going to have to concentrate. You can't read this with the TV on or with the radio on. But if you will take time to study this book, the book is The Cause of God and Truth, written by John Gill. And then you will find verses which you object to. You'll look up those verses and you'll see how Gill treats them. Um, you will be blessed and amazed that he answers every objection that I've ever had or every objection that I've ever heard, and he does it honestly and thoroughly. And let me say this also. If after listening to this series, you say, I don't want to buy a book from John Gill. I would just like someone to talk to. I would like someone to explain this to me because I just don't get it or I just don't agree with it. Let me just say, first of all, that there was a day, uh, a day, there were uh, about close to 25 years. There were many days when I was just as you are. And when I was looking for someone to talk to, it was very helpful that I spoke with someone directly. So if you would like to speak with me, if you would like to speak with any one of the elders, if you would like to speak with Caleb, uh, Caleb, if you'd raise your hand, if you'd like to speak with Steve Massaro, Steve, if you'd raise your hand, you can speak with any of these men, any of the elders. We'll be happy to talk to you about these doctrines that we love so much. Please don't um, 
talk behind our backs and say, well, we just don't agree with that. Well, why don't you agree with it? Well, why don't you go talk to the pastor? Well, that wouldn't do any good. I assure you, it would do good. We could, we could discuss. As the scripture says, come now, let us reason together. Let's reason from the scripture. Let's talk about these things. Um, but for those of you who have found this series to be helpful, well, may God be praised. Please know that the purpose of these messages was to exalt God, the one true author of our salvation and the finisher of our salvation. Now, if you are joining us today for the first time, or if you weren't listening for the first four sermons, let me give you a quick overview of what I've covered already. And I want to start out by saying for the final time, not the final time in my life, but the final time in my series, that these doctrines stand or fall together. If you can disprove one of them, then you can disprove them all. If you prove one of them, well, then they logically all stand together. As I said last week, they are Siamese quintuplets. Um, one who says that they are a two or a three or a four-point Calvinist is logically inconsistent. Why? The reason why is because all of the members of the Trinity do not work against one another. They work together. You see, in five-point Calvinism, it is a presentation of all of the members of the Godhead working together toward the same goal. Partial Calvinism has them pulling in opposite direction. And what we are trying to do is we are just trying to clarify and to drive home this one truth, Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. All three members working together. God the Father is my Savior. Jesus Christ is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my Savior. Uh, I am just as indebted to the Father for electing me as I am to the Son for dying for me. And I am as just as indebted to the Son for dying to, for me as I am to the Spirit who regenerated me. One God, three persons, all three members working together. That having been said, we are going to uh, look at our sheet now, and you'll see that there are some blanks at the top, and these are the five points of Calvinism which followed the acrostic of TULIP. We started off our first lesson with T. That stands for total depravity, which teaches that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and that he cannot and will not come to Christ for salvation left to himself. There's none that understands. There is none that seeks God. Uh, we have all been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And you say, well, what about free will? Well, we would say that anybody who wants to come can come and that you can come anytime you please. However, knowing the nature of man, nobody left to himself will come. And so we preach the gospel to every creature, but man left to himself will remain in darkness because he is totally depraved. Jesus said in John 6:44 that no man can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. Which brings us to you, unconditional election. And that is to say that God, before time began, chose certain individuals to be saved based solely upon the good pleasure of his will and not what he foresaw in them or what he foresaw that they would do. Now, these persons were given to the Son. It says in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Which brings us to the third point, which is limited atonement or particular redemption. And that is that Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he bore the sins of God's elect upon the cross. He didn't die for everyone without exception. He died for everyone without distinction. For if he did die for everyone without exception, then everyone's sins would be paid for, and everyone would be in heaven. No, Scripture says he died for the many, 
He died for the sheep. He died for the church. He, with unlimited power, died for a limited number of people, even as it says in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Which brings us to the fourth point, the I, which stands for irresistible grace or effectual calling, which we looked at last week. This says that all those whom the Father has chosen and all of those whom the Son has redeemed will be brought to life, will be regenerated, will receive an effectual call, will be born again by the Holy Spirit. There is the outward call, a call that I'm giving right now, which says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call goes out to every sinner. You must be born again. But who will hear that call? Who will hear the inward call? You see, the outward call can be and often is rejected. But the inward call, the effectual call, is a call that works. It's a call upon the heart. Now, what happens? Do we come into the kingdom kicking and screaming and being drugged against our will? No. No, we are made willing by the Holy Spirit. You see, everyone who comes to Christ comes because they want to come. They are saved by faith. They are saved by repentance, but faith and repentance are given to us. Irresistible grace does not mean that we are robots. It does not mean that we are puppets. It does not mean that we are marionettes. We make a genuine choice. And that's why the Calvinist can sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Why? Because we did decide to follow Jesus. You just need to know that the reason why we chose to follow Jesus is because we were made willing by the Holy Spirit. So, we are involved in evangelism. We preach the gospel to everyone, um, but we know that unless a person is regenerated or brought to life, they will never come. John 6:37, Jesus says, "All that the Father gives to me will come to me, but the one that comes to me, and all that come to me, I will by no means cast out." So, summing it up, we are all dead. God chose some. Jesus paid for those, and the Spirit brought them to life. Which brings us to our message today. It is the perseverance of the saints. Now, let me define this word saints. Saints does not refer merely to people who have already gone to heaven and have been canonized by the church. According to scripture, anybody that is a Christian, anybody that is born again, anybody that has been saved, anybody that knows the Lord is a saint. I am Saint Edwin of Dubois. Uh, you are saint. You fill your name in if you are saved. Perseverance means the pressing on or keeping the faith or keeping going, if you will. So the question is, can one who is truly saved lose their salvation? Well, today, as I said, I'm going to try to convince you from Scripture that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is scripturally accurate and logically consistent and true. In other words, I'm going to try to convince you that a child of God can never lose their salvation. Once again, as always, I will ask you to listen very closely. Take notes if you wish so that you don't misconstrue anything that I am saying. And in order to assist us in our learning, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Great God in heaven, you are the true and living God. We bow before you with hearts of thanksgiving that you have taken dead sinners... Lord, that you have set your affection upon them. 
Lord, that you've predestined them to life. Lord, that you have sent your son to suffer the humiliation and the pain of the cross for us. And that, Lord, you have miraculously sent your spirit to breathe life into us. We thank you for that, Lord. Now, Father, I pray that you would convince us that the God who has done all of this for us will also keep us to the end. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say, that I would be clear. Lord, I pray that I would speak with passion and with compassion. Lord, I pray that I would speak with accuracy. Lord, that I would speak with love. Lord, help me to speak the truth in love. Father, give the people ears to hear right now. Lord, cause them to be alert. Cause them to be students of the word. Lord, cause them to realize what a wonderful plan of salvation we have. Cause them to realize, Lord, that it is all of you. And so, Lord... Since this is all of you, Lord, I cast this care of mine upon you, asking you, Lord, not to allow me to stand by myself up here, but, Lord, I cast this upon you, asking you, Lord, please, to care for your people through the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll begin by explaining what the perseverance of the saints is not. The perseverance of the saints is not easy believism. Because easy believism is an enemy of the gospel. What is easy believism? Easy believism is the teaching that says you make a decision. uh, You either walk the aisle or you pray the prayer or you sign the card or you get down on your knees beside your bed and you say, dear Jesus, come into my heart. And now once you are in the kingdom of God, you can live any way that you choose to live. You can live sinfully. You can live rebelliously. You can live in just habitual debauchery, but then you'll still go to heaven at the end of your life. That is the gospel of easy believism. And it is not a true gospel. I remember the first time that I was confronted with an error such as this. You see, I was raised in a church where we believed in five-point Arminianism. We believed that we got ourselves in. We also believed that we could get ourselves out and that you could lose your salvation. So Eddie Boy goes off to college and he starts hanging out with some friends who show him some verses such as the ones that we've read already today which demonstrate that you cannot lose your salvation. And so I remember Thanksgiving 1980 coming home at Thanksgiving and dropping a bombshell upon my Arminian family saying to them, I have come to the conclusion that once one is saved, they are always saved. I remember a member of my family opening the Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and saying, How can you say that when the Bible says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord? Well, it was back to the drawing board, and for a short period of time, I regained my status as an Arminian because I didn't know how to answer that. You see, the doctrine of eternal security, which I was taught, was a doctrine of easy believism, the one that I described earlier. Live any way that you want to, and you'll still go to heaven. Now, you might lose your joy, you might lose your reward, you might lose your effectiveness, you might lose your fellowship, you might tarnish your testimony, but at the end of the day, you're going to be saved. I remember with horror, with horror, as a first-year minister of youth, having taken my students on a ski trip to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and as the bus was coming back to Atlanta, one of my chaperones stood up in front of the youth and chose to evangelize them. And I can still see him with his ski jacket on and with his glasses, his sunglasses on. And he said, teenagers, let me get your attention, please. 
I need all of you to get saved, and here's why. In your teenage years, you are going to be rebellious. You're going to do drugs, and you're going to drink. And let's just say one night you're out drunk, and you wrap your car around a telephone pole. You're going to need your fire insurance so that you don't go to hell. So what I would like all of you to do right now is to pray and ask Jesus into your heart, and this will guarantee that you are going to heaven. Please bow your heads and repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, come into my heart, come into my heart. Collectively, the whole bus, amazingly, was saved. That is not biblical evangelism. That is not the gospel. That is not the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is easy believism. That is an enemy of the gospel. That is heresy. You see, easy believism is not found in the Bible. But there's another extreme, which is the extreme of sinless perfection or losing your salvation every time you sin. And this is pretty much what I was raised with. I was raised to believe, and I was told by my youth leaders, that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. However, after you are saved, if you commit a willful sin, you are lost. Let's say you tell a lie and the Lord comes back the next minute. If he comes back and you have an unrepented sin in your life, you will go to hell. So I lived in constant torment. Every night I would put my head on my pillow and I would pray and I would say, Lord, please save me again. Every night I got resaved. The reason I got resaved every night is because I had sinned during the day and who didn't. So you had to pretty much live in a state of sinless perfection in order to be saved. These two extremes sinless perfection and easy believism are not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. And it's a two-sided coin. And if you'll flip your page over, I'd like to explain what it is from both perspectives. There is our part and there's God's part. Our part is perseverance. And it is essential for salvation. Now, where it all starts off to be a problem is the evangelist. The evangelist, like that youth leader in the bus. The one who says, pray this prayer and you're in. And the reason that evangelists usually will do this is because they are into numbers and statistics. Um, they will say something along these lines. We had a revival service and there were 24 people who came forward. 16 of them were baptized. But then you say to them three years later, where are all of these people? And they'll say, well, there's still two of them here. Well, where are the others? Well, we don't know. They sort of just disappeared. Well, are they saved? Absolutely they're saved. They prayed the prayer. They walked the aisle. And Jesus says that is not genuine salvation. Matthew 7:21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, not everyone who prays the sinner's prayer is going to heaven. And the best illustration of this is the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow the seed. Some of the seed fell on the wayside. The birds came along and snatched it up. Some of the seed fell in the shallow ground, sprouted up for a short period of time, but then died. Some fell among the thorns, shot up for a little while, but were choked out by the thorns. The fourth seed falls in the good soil. It grows and it produces crops. It grows and produces fruit. Now, why do I bring that illustration up? Because three of the seeds that actually started to grow, of those, only one of them 
actually produced fruit. Not everyone who blinks or winks or moves or smiles in the direction of Jesus Christ is actually converted. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This creates a problem for the evangelist who says, we had a crusade, and at this crusade, there were 200 decisions. There were 200 who were saved. Even though 10 of them are still attending church two years later, well, were they really saved? Absolutely, they were saved. Well, how can you explain their condition and their lifestyle? Well, this is where I need you to listen closely. Dispensationalism has created a third category which is not found in the Bible, which was not taught in church history. And the third category is this. It is the category of the carnal Christian. You see, the scripture teaches there are two kinds of people. There are those that are saved, those that are lost. Those that love the Lord, and those that don't. But what evangelists have had to do and what dispensationalism has created for the church is this third category. The third category is the carnal Christian. Now, they're not really in love with the Lord and living with him. And they're not really unsaved, but they're here in the middle. They're living like an unsaved person, but they have professed to know the Lord. So what do we do with the carnal Christian? They say, just tell him that he needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he will live like a Christian because he already is one. This is a false distinction. This is a verse that's taken out of context from 1 Corinthians, and it does great damage to the church. I can remember when I believed in the doctrine of, of the carnal Christian. I was in Daytona Beach on a mission project, and I was going from person to person sharing the gospel, and I remember I came upon this motorcycle gang, and there were a group there, and I said, would you men mind if I spoke to you for a few moments about Jesus Christ? Most of them didn't say anything at all, but one person designated himself as the spokesman for the group. And there he stood by his motorcycle with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I said, can I speak to you men about Jesus Christ? And he said, no, not really, really don't want to. I said, oh, why not? He said, because I'm saved already. I said, really? I said, what's it like being saved? He says, tell you the truth, being saved is the same as not being saved. <sighs> but thanks anyway. And I went on my way. And as I walked away, here's idiot me. I'm walking away saying, well, thank you, Lord. He's a brother. He's just struggling right now. Listen, we don't see anyone in Scripture who Jesus changed who walks away from them and they are different. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, <clears throat> these categories... Um, have to be placed in the minds of the people because we have rushed people to a decision. Jesus did not say, go and make decisions. Jesus said, make disciples of the nations. And there is a difference. There is a big difference. You see, the true child of God, and you know this, the true child of God will stumble, but ultimately he will not fall the true child of God will persevere to the end. The true child of God, because of the work of God, must persevere to the end. Now, let me be very clear. We are not saved by our perseverance and by our good works, by our continual repenting of our sins. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are saved by faith in Christ 
alone. Let me use my wedding ring as an illustration. This does not mean that I am married. This does not mean that I am divorced. This is merely a symbol. This is merely a sign. And in the same way, our actions, our good works, our perseverance does not save us. What saves us is faith alone in Christ alone. However, if we are saved, there will be good works. There will be good works, and therefore, they are necessary. Let me show you the doctrine of perseverance from a few verses, beginning there with Matthew 24, 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Peter 1.10 Make your calling and election sure. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. And you say, well, am I saved? I don't know. Are you? First of all, one individual cannot give another individual assurance of salvation. You see, you might have assurance of salvation right now because someone has told you, I know that you're saved. I can't tell you that you're saved. Your husband, your wife can't tell you you're saved. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. But I do know what the Word of God says. If you have made a decision, cried buckets, signed the card, walked the aisle, gone into the baptismal pool, but your life looks like 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, you are not saved. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The reason do not be deceived is written there is because we have a propensity toward being deceived. We can be easily tricked. Here's what Paul says. Neither fornicators. A fornicator is someone who sleeps with someone that they are not married to. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, not are, you're not currently in that state, but you were that way. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Paul gives it from another angle. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, speaking of the works of the flesh, basically the same thing as 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're clear to see, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, this isn't the first time you're hearing this, that those who practice, not just slip into one time, but those who have a pattern of living this way, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me stress, you are not saved by ceasing to commit adultery. There are plenty of people who have been helped by Alcoholics Anonymous. But what they are, unless they get saved, is they are sober people that are on their way to hell. You are not going to heaven because you stop being a drunkard. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But the absence of good works and the presence of these things 
indicates, do not be deceived. I've told you before, I'm telling you now, that you are not saved. You can't say, I know I'm saved, I was there when it happened, I felt it. In fact, I even walked with the Lord for years and then turn away and live like this and still be assured that you are going to heaven. There are many in the final day who will be shocked when they stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do many wonderful works? He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. In fact, Paul says that if you live like this, you should have an assurance that you are not saved. Now, do Christians sin? You know that they sin. I, I, you, you don't even need a Bible to know that you sin. But in case you didn't know, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 basically say this, that if we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. I think the best illustration of this is King David. King David, a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart commits adultery and then murder and then obstruction of justice and is in rebellion for at least nine months, silent about his sin. So what happened to King David? The Lord went after him. The Lord got his attention. The Lord brought him back. Did the Lord bring him back so that he would become saved? No, the Lord brought him back because he is saved. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Let me explain it this way. Let's take a little girl, a beautiful little girl. Let's give her a bath. I mean, really scrub her down. And then let's make sure that we spray some perfume on her. And let's put her in a party dress. And then let's put a bow in her hair. Why not give her some lipstick and maybe some nail polish, and let's get this little girl ready to go to the big event. Let's take a pig. Let's take that pig. Let's scrub that pig down. Let's give that pig a haircut. Let's make sure that we spray some perfume on this pig. Let's put this pig in a party dress. Let's put some lipstick on the pig, and let's paint the pig's nails. Put a bow in the pig's hair. Now, let's take both of them together and let's push them into a mud trough. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The little girl's going to get out of there just as fast as she can because it's not her nature to be in the slop. What is the pig going to do? The pig is going to say, oh, oh, I'm home at last. The pig is just going to roll around in that mud. He isn't going to care that the dress is getting dirty. He's going to be content in that mud. Let's take two people. Let's take a genuine, born-again, saved Christian. And let's see that born-again Christian start to develop some graces in their life and start to clean up and to repent of sin and to be walking in the truth. Let's take another person that thinks they are a born-again Christian. They've had an emotional experience. They've cried the tears. They've prayed the prayer. And they've started to see some changes in their life. But they really don't have a new heart. Let's see these changes take place. Then let's take both of them and let's just push them into sin. You know what's going to happen? The one that really loves the Lord is going to be miserable. They're going to be sorrowful. They're going to be broken. Now, they can both fall just as hard and just as far, but the one that loves the Lord is going to be miserable and is going to get out of that sin, is going to cry out, as David did, have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions, and he's going to get out of that sin as quickly as possible. You know what the fake believer is going to do when he falls into sin? 
He's going to feel like Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch. This is where I feel at home. I love my sin. I don't want to leave my sin. I am more comfortable in my sin than I am in righteousness. He is not going to feel guilty. He is not going to be chastened by the Lord. And he's not going to have the power to get rid of that sin or to get out of that sin. You see, some of you might struggle with the fact as to whether or not you're saved. Here is an indicator as to whether or not you are saved. Can you successfully sin? Can you indefinitely sin? Can you sin without being chastened? Can you remain in sin year after year after year? I think the scripture would say, no, you cannot. You say, well, how much backsliding is too much backsliding? At what point do we look at someone and say they weren't saved? Or do we look at them and say, well, they are saved, but they're just struggling right now? Hey, guess what? I'm not the judge and neither are you. In the final day, you're not going to stand before God. God's not going to look over at me and say, well, what do you think, Ed? Should I let him in? No. The Lord is the judge, and the Lord is the one that decides that. Notice what the scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Again, it's a two-sided coin. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Here are the two, seal, the two inscriptions on the seal. The number one is, is this. The Lord knows those who are his. Who's saved? I'll tell you this. The Lord knows who's saved. And here's the other side of it. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And if you do not depart from iniquity, you're not inscribed on that seal. You're not inscribed on that seal. You say, well, what if someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they walk with him for what appears to be years and then they turn away? Did they lose their salvation? No, according to 1 John 2.19, they didn't lose their salvation. It says they never had it to begin with. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest or it might become evident that none of them were of us. The greatest example of this is Judas. If you would have looked at Judas and you would have lined him up with the other other 11 disciples, you would have liked him. Uh, You talk about deception. He was able for three years to walk with Jesus Christ and to walk with the other 11 apostles, and they trusted him to the point where he was their treasurer. if, If there's even the slightest hint that I don't trust you, I will not give you my money. Judas, arguably, was the most trusted among them. He had the money. But yet, in the end, he's the son of perdition. He had everybody faked except Jesus. You might have everybody in the world fooled right now. So we persevere, and we persevere to the end. And again, I ask the question, is this a case where Judas was saved and he was lost? No, Jesus says clearly in Matthew chapter 7, Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. So, the doctrine of perseverance. Now, you want a you want a real hoot? True historic Calvinism and true historic Arminianism agree with everything that I've said up to this point. Historic Arminianism says you must persevere. Calvinism says you must persevere. There's no difference between them up to this point. Where the paths split is this. 
the Arminian says that you can lose your salvation. This is where we really need to correct that error, and that is God's preservation, Roman numeral three, that we are eternally secure in Christ. Once saved, always saved. <clears throat> the reason why I am going to persevere to the end is not because I am such a good guy. And it's not because I am so committed. It is because God is doing a work in me. When I go for a walk with my daughter, Madison, and we are on slippery ground or we are on ice, and I'm holding her hand, and she's doing her part, she's holding my hand, and all of a sudden, her feet start to go out from under her. What is the reason why she doesn't hit the ground? Is it because she has such a powerful grip to hold on to me? Because she has extended herself to me and she's, she, is, she is hanging on for dear life? No. The reason why she's not going to hit the ground is because God in his kindness has given me a pretty good grip and I clamp down on that hand and when I squeeze, she's not going anywhere. In the same way, the reason why you will be in heaven is not because you commit yourself to come to church every week or because you read your Bible or because you do anything. The reason I'm going to see you in heaven, the reason you're going to see me in heaven is because he is hanging on to us with his powerful grip. Madison's grip compared to mine is nothing and our grip compared to the Lord's is absolutely nothing. It is his work and therefore to God be the glory. It is his preservation. Philippians 1.6. Paul writes, being confident of this very thing. And don't skip over that. There were some things that Paul was not confident about. There were some travel plans and things that he just didn't know where he was going to end up. But he goes out of his way to say, this is a sure thing. I'm confident of this very thing. That he, God who has begun a good work in you, that is the work of regeneration and redemption and salvation, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. For you to fall makes God to be a liar. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. If we just came to church today and that's all I read and we went home, that would be enough information right there to tell you that you cannot lose your salvation. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Friends, if you are saved, you are secure. And the reason why you are secure is because of the mighty grip of God. John chapter 6, verse 39 and this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given to me, that of all he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. So as we look at the five points of Calvinism and we put them together, I ask you, logically, does it make any sense whatsoever to say that God chose us, that Jesus died for us, that the Spirit regenerated us, but then we can lose our salvation and fall away. At negate the election of God, to erase the blood of Jesus, to overrule the regeneration of the Spirit. That is ridiculous, not a chance. 
Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. In other words, everybody that he predestined, he effectually called. And whom he called, these he also justified. In other words, everybody that gets the inner call upon their heart, every single one of them is going to be justified and saved. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That means that every single person that is saved will one day be glorified and will be in heaven. If God chose you, then Jesus died for you. And if Jesus died for you, the Spirit will call you. And if the Spirit calls you, you will be in heaven. So you should not rest your eternal security upon what you do. You should rest it upon the purpose of God, the Trinity working together, the promises of his word. Now, there are many who do not call themselves five-point Calvinist who believe in the perseverance of the saints. And I just want to say to you, if you find yourself in that category, that is so unscriptural and that is so inconsistent to say that you did the choosing yourself, but now once you're in, you can't get out. No, the Arminians are consistent. They say, I got myself in, I can get myself out. The Bible says, he got you in. The Bible says, he's going to be the one to keep you. You will be with him forever. Let's add some balance to this as we, um, as we close. Turn to two more passages. One is Jude. Jude only has one chapter. Here's the perseverance side of it. Jude verse 21, next to the last book in the Bible. One page long, Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You see perseverance there? You keep yourself in the love of God. You persevere. If you live this way, you will not inherit eternal life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away, old things become new. Make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Examine yourself as to whether you be in the faith. You keep yourself in the love of God. Persevere with everything in you. Now, why are we going to be in heaven? Verse 24. The preservation of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He is the one that is able to keep you from falling. Romans chapter 8. This great crescendo of truths which seals and locks and solidifies and secures our salvation. Paul has spent eight chapters talking about justification and what it means. And now he's locking it in saying, here's how secure you are, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now he asks a series of rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implied answer is, no one can be against us. He who did not bear, spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And he shall give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The implied answer is nobody, because it is God who justifies who is he who condemns? The answer is nobody, because it is Christ who died and, furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And here's another question. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. And well, Paul says, well, uh, let me give some possibilities as to something that might separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? No. Or peril? No. Or sword? No. None of them. Why? Because as it is written, for your sake, speaking of persecution here and even persecution to the point of martyrdom, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are as accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Uh, yet in all of these things, even if it gets this bad, we are not just conquerors, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How in the world is there any wiggle room whatsoever in that text for someone who is truly saved losing their salvation? I just don't see it. You say, why don't you present the other side? That is stinking airtight. There is no other side. Application. Number one. I have four points of application. Number one, always keep preservation and perseverance in balance. Because if you look at one without looking at the other, you're going to be in trouble. Let me explain why. If you just look at perseverance, that is what you do, then one of two things will happen. You'll either become proud and arrogant because look at what I did. I kept myself or you'll become discouraged and say, how in the world could I possibly be saved looking at all the things that I've done? So if you're just looking at yourself, that's trouble. If you just look at the Lord and say, once you're in, you're in. You've got your fire insurance. He's going to keep me to the end. And then you don't persevere it will lead to antinomianism and you will say, let us continue to sin that grace may abound. How do we know if someone's saved? Well, if you look at an apple tree, how do you know that it's an apple tree? Because it grows apples. It doesn't become an apple tree when it grows apples. It demonstrates that it already is an apple tree because it grows apples. How do you know someone's a Christian? By their fruit, you will know them. Look at the balance. Look at your life. Look at the Lord, but look at them in balance, not one to the exclusion of the other. Here's point number two. Do not trust in your profession or your decision or your feeling or your tears or your experience. 
for assurance. There are some people sitting here today who are fully convinced that they are going to heaven. You're living wicked, rebellious lives. But you are convinced that you're going to heaven and you're basing that solely upon the fact that you cried when you prayed the sinner's prayer. Don't base your assurance upon your experience. Base your assurance upon Christ and his shed blood and his faithfulness to the Father and the gospel, which is of first importance. Then as you look to your life, if it matches 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians 5, know that you are not saved. But don't look to your experience. Look to Christ. Here's application point number three. You walked in the room today, you knew you were unsaved, or maybe during the preaching today you came to the conclusion that you now know that you're unsaved. You walked in here today thinking that you were saved, but now you know that you're not. This is the day of salvation. Let me give the general call, the outward call, trusting the Lord that he will accompany that with the inward effectual call, and that is this. Acknowledge today that you are a sinner, a helpless sinner who is deserving of hell. Acknowledge that deep within your heart, not intellectually, but Lord, I am undone. Be broken over that. Believe in your heart that what he did upon the cross was enough. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And call out to the Lord to save you. Lord, have mercy upon me. I was trusting previously in my profession, but now, Lord, I'm just trusting in you and you alone. Lord, please save me. Application point number four. You came in here today knowing that you were saved, but now during the preaching of the word, you are really convinced that you are saved because he has shown you that you are secure forever. Please take that security and turn it into thankfulness and turn it into praise. Acknowledge the fact that you were dead. Stand in awe of the fact that he chose you. Why? Who, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? You chose me? If that ever seems, I don't want to take it too far, but if you come to the point at the end of the doctrines of grace where you say to yourself, absolutely, I can see why God chose me. Makes all the sense in the world. How could he not? I, you're an amazing congregation. When I try to make you laugh, you, you, you're, you're, you're silent. And when I try to be serious, you're, you're, you think it's funny. If your attitude is that you think you have something coming to you or it makes sense to you in any way that God chose you, I don't want to say that you're probably not saved, but you're probably not saved. We need to be in awe of the fact that he did this and just baffled by the fact that why out of millions lost would you choose me? We need to be aware, acutely aware of the fact that he died for us. Not just that he died for the vast nameless blob of humanity, but you need to be aware that when he was on the cross, that you were on his mind, that your sins were paid for in full. You need to praise him that he brought you to life, that he breathed life into you when you were dead, when you were running the other way. And now what do we do? We just rest secure. In other words, what I want you to do is just like to breathe a sigh of relief. 
just to, <sighs> I am his forever. Always and forever. There's nothing I can do. Nothing that anybody can do to me. Satan can't get his hands on me. That voice inside my head when I talk to myself, and when I say to myself, you are not worthy. He's a liar. You've been made worthy by Christ. The propensity of your heart that drives you away from righteousness to sin, which sometimes you fall into, he's got his hooks in you. He's going to pull you out of that, and he's going to bring you back, and he's going to present you before the throne faultless. <sighs> we are his forever. Rest in that. Rest in that. Father, I pray that you would take these words and drive them deep into our hearts, deep into our ears. Cause us, Lord, to be a thankful people. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.